And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this whole concept of a mediator is not a, a, a new one. Even if we don't use the term, really, in our daily lives, this idea of a mediator isn't new. I mean, if you think of legal cases, people often use an attorney to represent them, to mediate the situation in a legal term, right? I mean, you have people who maybe committed a crime and they don't want to have to appear in court until necessary, so they send an attorney on their behalf to mediate for them. Or you have an attorney who mediates between a divorce that happens, or you could go on and on any legal matters. You have somebody who mediates for you. Or if you think on a lighter note about children, Right? Has anybody had a specific child that usually was the one that made the requests of the parents rather than the other one? Or if you wanted to go over to a friend's house, right? you always took this one along with you in order to ask if you could go over there. So that way it was less likely for your parent to say no with this mediator kind of buffer between you and them, right? So today, as we talk about the coming priest, we're going to cover this concept of mediation. Now, we often link this idea of a mediator to the Old Testament, right? Because there were priests who had to go before God on behalf of the people of Israel. Israel couldn't approach God in and of themselves. They had to have a priest do it for them. They had to have a priest mediate to God for them. But this isn't because they didn't want to go to God. It's because they knew that their sin had separated from them and they couldn't go to God. Right? Even the priest couldn't step in the presence of God except the high priest once a year. Right? At least in the Old Testament. You see, because the sin in the world had introduced this chasm between God and man. Right? Now there was a a separation between God and man. When they were once together, they're now divided. But what we're going to see as we look through the Old Testament and as Jesus, as the coming priest, we're going to see that this whole Old Testament system that was set up was never the end goal. God didn't implement the Old Testament system to be the final system. He did it to point forward to a coming system. And today we're going to take this kind of like helicopter view of Scripture specifically the Old Testament system, and see how it's suggesting to us a better way that's yet to come with this coming priest. So the first thing we see is that this was a system, the Old Testament system was a system of what I call shadows, right? I get that word from Hebrews. They say that these were shadows of things yet to come. But first, before we even get to the shadows, we need to understand our need for a system in the first place. Right? In order to understand the system, we have to know why it's even there. As I mentioned, the moment sin entered the world, there was a chasm between God and man, a separation between them. Someone has to mediate that chasm now. While Adam and Eve first were able to walk with God, now somebody has to bridge the gap between God and man. When we think of the Old Testament, we think that was the priest's job. But what about before the priests? Right, Because the law isn't implemented until Exodus. So what about the whole story of hundreds of years, thousands of years in Genesis? Right, What, what happens there? Where's the priests at there? So let me give you three instances of bridging this chasm that we see before the law is ever even introduced. 
First one is with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve are sent from the garden, what does God do? He clothes them with animal skins. He puts clothing upon them. So there's already this element of Adam and Eve sinned, an animal had to be sacrificed in order for the skins to be given to Adam and Eve as a covering. Right? They, they now had to be covered with some sort of clothing because of their sin. They could no longer be naked. So we see there's already a mediator there. God is the one mediating, but there's this element of animal sacrifice there. You skip ahead a little while to Abraham and Isaac. What happens? God calls Abraham to sacrifice his own son. Now this isn't said that it's done for sin, but it's said to be done as an offering to the Lord. But what ends up happening? We have another animal end up getting sacrificed in place of Isaac. And then we end up with the Israelites enslaved in Egypt. Where do we see another animal sacrifice? Where do we see another bridging of the gap? With the tenth plague. If you don't want your firstborn to be killed, what do you do? You kill a lamb and you put its blood around the doorposts. Right? So we already see before the law is ever introduced, there's this element of trying to bridge this gap between God and his people. There's this chasm here, and these animals are, are being offered, in a sense, to appease him for now. Each of these takes place before the system is in place. So there's this idea of needing to be covered by something, right? Specifically blood, needing to be covered because of your sin with blood, even from the get-go in Genesis chapter 3. But we, now we get up to Israelites been freed, and God gives them through Moses the law. The law is necessary because now you have thousands, hundreds of thousands of Israelites. It's no longer that God can come to Abraham and say, offer your son to me, and that's, that's the whole group of God's people is Abraham right there. Now you have thousands and thousands of people. So God sets up this system to say, this is how we're going to bridge the gap. This is how we're going to fix the chasm for now. Notice some elements of the law that are put into place. We see this throughout Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, all these laws that are given. But let's just catch some elements of it. Exodus chapter 28, verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. So we have an establishment now in Exodus 28, an establishment of a priesthood. Aaron and his sons are set to serve as those who mediate between God's people and God. They can't come to God by themselves because of their sin at this point, and there hasn't been a sufficient sacrifice yet. So there's all sorts of regulations that are put into place, right, of of how these priests are going to do their jobs, how they're going to dress, how they're going to purify themselves. But the whole point is this, that as the tabernacle is set up as the holy place of God, is where God's presence dwells within Israel, somebody has to go in and represent the people. That's the job of the priest. 
But it's not just the priests that are established with the law. We also see that there's a need for sacrifices set up here. Leviticus chapter 16, starting in verse 6. This is just the yearly element of sacrifice. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement for it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness of Azazel. So this whole book of Leviticus is given to give instructions, and here we see just one specific instruction just for the Day of Atonement, that there's one that's going to be sacrificed, and there's one that's going to carry the sins of the people into the wilderness. But that's just the yearly sacrifice, let alone the entire book, right? The entire book of Leviticus, some of the book of Numbers, all filled with laws saying not just yearly things, but this is what your day-to-day life looks like. If this happens, if you touch a dead animal, this is how you cleanse yourself. If you do this and make yourself unclean, this is how you cleanse yourself. There's a daily, daily aspect to this. Day by day, they have to make sure that they are cleansed in the way that they eat, in the way that they relate to each other, even when they sin unintentionally. They didn't know this was in the law, but they still went against it. You have to still cleanse yourself of it. So there's specific points here. That the people need represented before God because of their sin. And they need their sin to be forgiven. There has to be some sort of payment for their sin. But now we get to the aspect of shadows. That this whole system that's set up in the Old Testament was not the end goal. God didn't mess up, right? So hear that clearly. God was right in setting the system up, but it was never meant to be the end system. It was always meant to point forward to a day when a greater priest would come, a day when the sacrifice would be made final and the animals would no longer have to play a part in it. It's kind of like the idea of foreshadowing, right? We see this in movies all the time. Right? Elements of foreshadowing. There's always a, a hint to a plot point that's going to happen later in the movie. Let me give you an example. I was watching one of those cheesy Christmas movies with our family yesterday. You know, one of those ones that it's just poorly made, but it makes you feel good, so you watch it. So There's this mom and this little girl, and they end up staying with this guy who plays Santa Claus um, just for fun, you know, like at parties and things. But what happens is early on in the movie, the mom notices on that guy's keychain is a picture of his son and his wife and his child. And just, that's it. It shows that she's looking at it and shows the picture and puts it down. Nothing more is said. That's foreshadowing. It's saying that there's a plot point to come later, that there's a problem in the relationship between this guy and his son. You end up finding out that he hasn't seen him in six or seven years, and there ends up being this beautiful story of restoration because it's one of those cheesy Christmas movies, right? But that's foreshadowing. It's dropping this hint in place of saying there's something more that's going to happen. That's the shadows here. 
They're saying that while this is how things are going to work for now, you're going to operate in some sense of mystery because there's something else greater that's coming. This is just pointing towards it. Let me give you some elements of how we see this even show up in the Old Testament. Look at Numbers chapter 20, verse 28. And Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eliezer his son. And Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron had perished, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. How is this a shadow? The priests die. They have to continue over and over to find more people, more priests, right? We end up finding out that the tribe of Levi is who the priests are going to come from. But the whole point here is Aaron dies. Aaron is the first priest set up, now dies and has to get passed on to his son. And then has to get passed on to his son. There's no perfection, there's no finality to the priesthood here. It just keeps getting passed on and passed on. And it's not passed on to anybody perfect, but it's passed on to sinners, Aaron lost two sons before he died because they were priests and they offered worship in the wrong way to God and they were killed for it. So there's this imperfection, in a sense, to this priesthood, this, this not quite finalized yet. It's not that God didn't, wasn't right in setting it up, but it was just a shadow of what was to come. It's begging for this idea of we need a priest who will be a priest forever a priest who will permanently stay in place, that we don't need to replace him. So that's with the priests. Let's talk about sacrifices for a moment. Psalm chapter 40, starting in verse 6. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Are you catching this? In the Old Testament, when the law is still in place, when the sacrifices are still being done, you have David himself saying, you don't delight in our sacrifices and offerings. You are not taking pleasure. You're not requiring the burnt offering and sin offering from us. That's not your end goal here, right? He's not saying that they didn't do them. He's saying that that was never the end purpose. It was not just to go through the motions and offer the sacrifices and you're good forever. The point was there was supposed to be an internal element to it. And that's where he goes to, right? Verse 8, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. There's an internal aspect to it. He's saying it wasn't just this routine of externally doing the things. It was meant to get at the core of the people of who they are for them to recognize that they were sinners. Paul tells us that's the purpose of the law. Well, so that you realize you can't live up to it. So we have the temporariness of priests and we have the insufficiency of sacrifices It leaves this whole system of shadows yearning for a day of finalization. A day when this will be completed. And as we move, we stay in the Old Testament. As we move from this point of the Old Testament to the prophetic times of the Old Testament, we see that there is a promise made by a prophet when all of this shadows will be fulfilled. When the shadows 
will now be fully realized in what they're meant to be. We come to a moment in Israel's history where we have a promise of a better covenant yet to come. This is a moment where Israel has utterly failed. They have failed to worship rightly. They have failed to do the sacrifices like they're supposed to. They have failed to love God. They have failed to love each other. God tells them that they are operating in injustice. They're oppressing each other. They're idolaters. They're worshiping other gods. They're not coming to him alone for worship. And as Israel faces judgment, Jeremiah, who speaks a lot of that judgment, in the midst of his book, gives this glimpse of hope. That there is a day coming when Israel will not operate in the way that they currently are. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Three aspects here. Three promises of a new covenant that's vastly different than their current reality. First one, the promise that the law will be written on people's hearts and minds. In verse 33. Up until this point, where's the law? It's on tablets of stone that God gave Moses. Right? Now that's not saying they didn't copy it down or have copies of it or anything. But the law... Originally, the whole point of it, right, on this tablets of stone. And now we have Jeremiah promising a day when God will write it on people's hearts. When it'll be on, in people's minds. It's breaking this down. You don't have to go to a priest anymore. When this day comes, no longer do you need a priest to go read the law for you and tell you what the law says. It's already going to be in you. You don't have to have, go to the temple to have someone go to God on your behalf, right? That's what we see in verse 34, the second part of it. People will know the Lord for themselves. Nobody any longer, no priest has to come to you and say, know that the Lord says this, know the Lord in this way, but instead you will be able to go to the Lord. You will be able to be in relationship with Him. Right? It's kind of like if you think about third-hand experiences, Right? Has anybody heard of, think of a vacation spot you haven't been to, and when you've talked to someone that has been there, right? How great is the experience for you just hearing it from them? And then compare it to the day when you finally get to be there in person, right? Now, this could be a number of different places. One of the first ones that came to mind was we, we probably think this about the Grand Canyon. Right? If somebody describes it to you, it's completely different than when you are standing there yourself. Or I think of what place I want to go is Israel, 
right? People talk about how great it is to walk the streets and to kind of experience all these places where Jesus was. But you don't, you can't really experience it just hearing about it. You have to go there and and see it for yourself. Or I can tell you, the experience of Fenway Park is a thousand times greater in person than watching it on TV. But that's what they had up until this point, wasn't it? You have priests that have to come to you and say, know the Lord. But you can't fully do it on your own yet. But Jeremiah comes and says, there's a day coming when nobody any longer is going to have to tell you to know the Lord. But you will know him. His law will be on your mind and your heart. And then the third aspect at the end of verse 34. The third promise. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Sins will be forgiven and will no longer be remembered. The insufficiency of animal sacrifices, animal offerings will end and there will be a final sacrifice. These promises of this new covenant are so infinitely better than anything the old system of shadows was offering. So it leaves Israel longing for this day, right? This day when there's this new covenant that's going to start, this new covenant that's going to be inaugurated, craving for this day that you and I are about to celebrate. This day when a priest will come. Which leads us to our last point. The perfect high priest. I use this terminology because this is what we see used in the New Testament, specifically in Hebrews. We see Jesus described as the high priest and the perfect high priest because we see him bringing fulfillment, completion to this old system of shadows. What makes him the perfect high priest? First of all, he's an eternal priest. As opposed to the temporary priests of the Old Testament who, were, who died and then had to get replaced by people in the family line, Christ is the priest who continues forever. He's permanently in place and he finalizes everything. Hebrews actually describes him as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now there's a name for you. In case you're not familiar with Melchizedek, he shows up in the Old Testament twice. He shows up in Genesis, where Abraham runs into him, and he's just described as the priest of the Most High God. Now remember, Abraham is living in a time when the law hasn't come yet, so there is no priest set up. There's no priesthood for this God set up yet. But he runs into this Melchizedek, who's the priest of the Most High God. And Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. Right? He, he makes this offering to him, showing that there's a superiority to this priest versus himself. The writer of Hebrews actually says that because the nation of Israel was to come from the line of Abraham, in a sense, this old, whole old system of shadows, the whole law, is actually lesser than the priest of Melchizedek because in Abraham the offering was made to the superior priest. And we see in Hebrews that Melchizedek is supposed to be someone pointing us forward to a 
priesthood that exists outside this system of shadows. Melchizedek existed before the priesthood was ever set up in the system of shadows. So it tells us that there's a a greater priesthood here and more eternal priesthood here. So he shows up there in Genesis and he shows his name only shows up one other time and we see it in Psalm 110 and it's actually quoted in Hebrews chapter 7 for us. Hebrews 7:17 7, it says for it is witnessed of him you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek's priesthood is what? forever. Right? That was the whole point. We don't know anything else about Melchizedek. He shows up in that one instance with Abraham, and then in Psalms it says he was a priest, the order in which priests are forever. And that's it. That's all we know about him. Hebrews tells us he was meant to point towards the Son, who is the great high priest, the perfect high priest. So then there's an argument here that if Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, notice Hebrews 7, verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently Because he continues forever. So because Jesus is a priest that exists forever and no longer has to have this whole dying and replacement happening, he brings a better covenant, which we already knew was going to happen, right? Jeremiah told us of this day. So this Old Testament system had many priests and had to keep creating more Hebrews tells us Christ is one, and that's it. It's final. It's over. There's no more priests needed. And there's an element of finality to Christ's priesthood. Look at verse, chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So while the Old Testament priests constantly offering more and more sacrifices, it says those sacrifices couldn't even take away people's sin. But instead, Christ offers a single sacrifice and then sits down. There's an element of finality to it. He never has to get up and offer another sacrifice again. It's done. It's over. And it even tells us here at the last verse, right, that his sacrifice was perfected for all time. So we have Christ as the eternal priest, But second, we see Christ, and we saw elements of it, Christ as the sacrificial priest. It's not just that Christ brings the old to an end and establishes a new and better covenant, but all of it is accomplished through one single sacrifice, and that's the sacrifice of himself. Go back to Hebrews 7, verse 27. 
he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So there's sacrifices. The priests had to offer sacrifices for themselves to cleanse themselves, and then they had to offer more sacrifices for the people in order for their sins. But here we say, we see Christ offers himself, and that's it. He doesn't have to offer, first of all, he doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself because he's sinless, and second of all, there's no more sacrifices needed for the people because he is sufficient. It's not just an end to this old system, but there's this, this better way of purification. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Did you catch the difference here? The sacrifices of the old system purified the flesh, the external, The sacrifice of Christ purifies the conscience, which is an internal aspect. And we see that Christ, as the sacrificial priest, offers this complete forgiveness that Jeremiah 31 told us about. Just continue a little further down. Hebrews 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ's sacrifice of himself puts away sin. This complete forgiveness that Jeremiah talked about is now coming to fruition, the day when God will remember our sin no more. So Christ enters heaven, not a copy of it in the temple. Christ is not offered repeatedly, but he's offered once and once for all. And he puts away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ's sacrifice of himself ends the need for animals, ends the heavenly copy of things, and it cleanses people internally and totally forgives all of our sin. The time of the shadows is coming to an end. Isn't that really the point of Advent? I mean, isn't that why people start Christmas so early sometimes? Now, some of you I know are driven nuts by the thought of Christmas in October, right? But you have other people who love this time of year and just can't help themselves but start as early as possible. 
Why? For some, it may be because they love the lights and they love the decorations and that sort of thing. But I would say that there's much more to it than that. This idea of Christmas, the moment it's introduced into our lives, whatever month you decide to introduce it, starts to build this anticipation. It starts to stir something in our hearts that there's this this time, this season of joy, peace, hope. And love that surrounds us. Right? I love the Christmas season, but I don't love it because the town looks pretty. Though it does. I love it because I think people tend to have this reorientation back to Jesus during this season. Not everybody. Some make it about presents. But I look around and I see the nativity scenes lit up or I see them in people's houses, or on Christmas trees, or on on boards, or wherever you see the words of joy, hope, faith starting to show up. It's it's pointing towards something. There's more to it than just the decorations. There's this anticipation of something that's, that's coming, and the season climaxes in the coming of Jesus. The coming of this priest, this perfect high priest who offers himself as the final sacrifice and now has sat down in heaven because no more sacrifices need to be made. So brothers and sisters, the coming of Christ, this high priest, has profound implications for your life. First of all, the coming priest offers complete forgiveness Complete forgiveness is now available to you, right? Those in the Old Testament had to put their faith in a day in the future when this forgiveness would come. The animals were not sufficient but were a shadow of what was to come. But in Christ, you have forgiveness offered to you where your sin is completely removed. It's not just forgotten. It's not that God says, I'm just going to act like it never happened. Your sin has already been paid for at the cross. So no matter how bad you think you are, no matter what thoughts you have, no matter what feelings you have, no matter what actions you've done, forgiveness is available to you. God is not waiting for you to get control of your life and then come to him. His forgiveness is what allows you to have the spirit so that you can even start to try to have control of your life by his power. And on the other side of things, right, we have this one group of people who think they're so bad God can't forgive them. On the other side, we have this other group of people who think they don't need forgiveness. No matter how good you think you are, you need this. Salvation is for those who know they're sick. It's not for those who think they're already righteous. If you think your moral goodness is enough, you're deceived. Second, in this coming priest, you've been given complete forgiveness. Now you've also been given access to God. The curtain being torn in two is not just a cool, dramatic part of the movie about Jesus. It's the fact that this shadow system has now been broken down because the fulfillment has come. It's hard for us to conceive the significance of this curtain being torn in two. 
right? Because we've never lived in the system of the Old Testament. We don't know what it truly felt like to say, I could never get into the presence of God. We don't know what it feels like to say, I have to go to a priest who has to go behind a curtain to go to God for me. But I want you to imagine this pandemic as an illustration of it, right? There's been times during the pandemic where you're not supposed to not be allowed to visit your family, right? If they're in another state or if they've been exposed or whatever it is. Now I want you to imagine your entire life like that, forever. You never get to see them. That's Israel's relationship with God in the Old Testament. Other than the priests who get to wear the hazmat suits and go in, right? Nobody gets to see God. Nobody gets to enter his presence. So imagine that reality. And then you have a baby born in Bethlehem who bridges this chasm. The distance that was once there starts to be closed. That those who trust in Jesus can draw near to God, that Hebrews tells us we can approach his throne of grace with confidence. If you feel distanced from God, you must ask the question of why have you missed the access you have to him? Are you living in sin that makes you want to hide from him? Or maybe you're so busy that you haven't pursued this access. For those who believe in Jesus, there's a promise. You draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. And last, in the coming priest, you have Christ interceding for you in heaven. Israel had sinful priests who had to go through all the laws to to cleanse themselves, and then even have limited entrance into God's presence. But on the, you, on the other hand, have Christ in heaven. He's not bound to a physical place, but he's in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and he's speaking to the Father on your behalf. He's interceding for you. Brothers and sisters, rest in this reality. Not lazy, but rest in this reality. This shouldn't make you stop coming to God because, oh, Christ is doing it for me. But instead, it should make you approach him all the more because you can be confident that you already have a mediator who's there. That you know when you approach God's throne, you will receive mercy and grace that you need to live the life that you've been called to live. So I urge you today to find this rest in this time leading up to Christmas. As you celebrate the birth of our Savior this year, take time to rest in his priesthood. That the shadows are no longer in place, but instead complete forgiveness is offered to you. That the curtain, that the chasm is no longer in place, but in Christ you have been reconciled to the Father. And you can approach this Father with assurance that he will hear you and give to you. And rest in the fact that you have the best person possible interceding for you. That Christ was tempted in every way that you and I have been, but never sinned.
but he's also the son of God. The son that is loved by the father and the son that the father loves to listen to. So you can be sure of this and rest in this, that when you approach the father through this high priest, who is Jesus, you can be sure that you will find mercy and grace. Let's pray together. Father, give us, give us rest. May we, may we not pursue our lives in such a way that we think that if we are morally good enough or if we just try hard enough that, that our sins will be forgiven. Help us to realize the sacrifice has already been made. Our sins are paid for if we would just trust in Jesus. And that because of that, we can approach you with confidence, with assurance that, that we're not going to be cast out of your presence because in Christ we can enter. And we know that we have Christ there interceding for us already. Help us to rest in that. Help us to be able to take a moment and breathe this season as we begin to comprehend this rest. This idea that Christ is already there speaking to you on our behalf. And you listen to him. But it's also because of that that we ourselves can enter into your presence. May we do so. May we not be scared May we not be so busy that we don't enter into your presence this season. But may we approach you with confidence. And when we come to you, may we receive the mercy and grace that we need each and every day to live the life that you've called us to live, a life that is pleasing to you, a life that is conformed to the image of Jesus. And we ask all of this in his name.